Amen, amen. What a day that the Lord has given us already here at Liberty Baptist. Man, I'm telling you, if you don't feel the Spirit here today, as the old preachers used to say, your wood is wet. God is alive and well and in the building. Elvis may have left, but Jesus is here. If you have your Bible here this morning, I want to turn our attention to Thanksgiving. I want to preach to you a Thanksgiving-themed message from Psalm 100, if you have your copy of God's Word. Psalm 100, that should be easy to find. Psalms is kind of toward the middle of your Bible. But I want to talk to you this morning about a theology of thanksgiving. There's a great story about Rudyard Kipling, the lauded British poet and novelist of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, Kipling was most famous for his timeless classic, The Jungle Book. In 1907, he actually received the Nobel prize in literature, and consequently his success in the literary world got him a fortune. He made a lot of money off of his books, and that sparked criticism in the British media. Well, there was an ambitious news reporter who was approaching Mr. Kipling one day. He was digging for a story, and he said to the great writer, he said, Mr. Kipling, I just read that Somebody calculated that the money that you've made from your writings amounts to over 100 pounds per word. Now keep in mind this is Great Britain and their denomination of currency is not the dollar but the pound. But for every word that you write, Mr. Kipling is worth about 100 pounds. Well, Mr. Kipling, when he heard this news, his eyebrows raised and he said, Well, sir, I was not aware of that. The reporter then reached into his pocket and he produced a... 100 pound bill and he gave it to Mr. Kipling and he cynically said sir here's a 100 pound bill now give me one of your 100 pound words Rudyard Kipling took the bill from his hand looked at it for a moment folded it up put it in his coat pocket and said thanks (laughs) I don't know what Thanks is valued at today, but in God's economy, the word thanks is worth more than gold. The Lord values an attitude of gratitude in His children. In fact, in the Scriptures, if you study the theme of thanksgiving, you soon find out that thanksgiving is not just a good idea or a suggestion, it's a command. In fact, it carries the same weight as love your neighbor or give to the poor. In fact, I was reading from one scholar this week who said that over a hundred times, either by imperative or by example, the Bible commands us to be thankful. So if quantity implies gravity, then it's quite evident that God takes thanksgiving very seriously. Now, uh, we're turning to Psalm 100 today because it is a classic passage on the theme of Thanksgiving, let's read it together. Verse 1, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. 
Psalm 100 is a classic passage on thanksgiving. It's just five verses. It's one of the shortest psalms in the Bible. But the more that you meditate upon these verses, you see that God has a way of packing a lot of truth into a small package. Scholars tell us that Psalm 100 was actually sang by faithful Jews as they entered the temple, especially when they were going to give a peace offering. That was different than a sin offering because a peace offering was given just to praise God for who He is, not because you want something from Him. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, in his Treasury of David, he commented that Psalm 100 was his favorite. And here's what he said. He said, let us sing the old hundredth, for nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this noble psalm by a vast congregation. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and sing Psalm 100 today. And all God's people said, Amen. But we are going to preach from this passage today. And I want to talk to you about the theology of thanksgiving. And in this message, in this psalm, what I see here are five traits about God that should lead us to a place of worship and gratitude. Number one, I want you to see this this morning. We give thanks because, watch this, God is our source. God is our source. We read about that in verse 3. Notice what the text says. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. God is our source. This first attribute of God that the psalmist lists here is God's role as Creator. And friend, two of the most basic and necessary questions that every worldview must answer is how did I get here and where am I going? This psalm answers that by taking us back to Genesis 1 and verse 1 when God stepped out from behind the curtain of nowhere and then stood on the platform of nothing and called it all into existence from molecules to man, from the smallest quirk and subatomic particle to the grandest galaxy, uh, from amoebas to Adam, He made it all. We should pair this verse with other creation musings that we find in the psalm. For instance, Psalm 104 and verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures, living things both small and great. And also we could think about Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully, what church? Wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Uh, let me just park here for a second and preach for a moment. Knowing that you are a special creation of an all-loving, all-powerful God is a primer for praise because you understand that I'm made in the image of God. My life has meaning. I was made lovingly and individually and purposefully. I'm not an accident. I'm not just a collection and a clump of cells. I'm not just a blip on the cosmic radar. But a loving, eternal, powerful God saw fit to make me and to make you. We are not, listen to me church, we are not the product of time and matter and chance. 
You are not the cosmic accident of the process of evolution. A while back I saw a comic strip of a family sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner and here was the bubble above the man who was giving the blessing. He must have been an atheist because here's what he prayed. And we wish to thank evolution for turning some species of dinosaur into a walking ball of meat with a tiny head. <laughs> it's funny... But when you think about it, I don't know what an atheist does on Thanksgiving. G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian writer, he said the worst moment for an atheist is when he's really thankful and has no one to thank. What does a skeptic do? What does an unbeliever do? Who do they thank? Themselves? They didn't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They didn't give themselves life and breath and health and skill and ability to go out and make a living. Well, who are you going to thank? The universe? What does that even mean? This verse won't let us take credit for anything, will it? And not we ourselves, the psalmist said in verse 3. None of us can claim to be a self-made man or woman. Like I said... If you have a good job, if you have a home, if you have money in the bank, if, if you are doing well today, it's because God made you and God gave you health and strength and the skill to go out and make a living. We don't have any reason to thump our chests and stick our chests out with pride today. Because in fact, Paul makes an interesting comment in Romans one twenty one that the heart of unbelief and rebellion is a spirit of ingratitude. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks. They became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their hearts were darkened. This is the problem with our culture today, the most narcissistic society that's ever been, where uh, we have millionaire athletes who kneel at games and protest because they're so oppressed because they make millions of dollars playing a game and we're so self-absorbed and so ungrateful in this nation, we need to go back to Psalm 100 and verse 3 and remember it's not we ourselves, but God has made us. And friend, when God is your source and you understand that, it changes things. Dr. Francis Collins is one of the world's most prestigious scientists in the world. He's known for heading up the Human Genome Project in which he helped unlock the complexity of DNA. He began his career as an atheist, but the more that Dr. Collins studied the intricacies of the cell and complex design of life, his skepticism crumbled. He shocked the scientific world when he announced that he believed in God. When Dr. Collins gives a talk about his faith, he shows this slide. In order to illustrate the incredible design of every human cell, he presents these two images side by side. Notice on one side is a magnificent photo of a stained glass rose window from York Minster Cathedral in Yorkshire, England. Notice the design, notice the color, notice the artistry and the detail. It's symmetry, it's geometric patterns. Clearly a work of great mind and great skill. On the other side of the screen appears a cross-section of a strand of human DNA. It mirrors that of the rose window in York Minster. 
the symmetry, the color, the creativity, all shows the handiwork of an all-wise, all-powerful God. God has put this beauty, hidden it even in your DNA. And friend, when you realize that, the 37.2 trillion cells in your body ought to be one hallelujah from the pinky toe to the top of your head. You see, because I know my Creator, that means I am imbued with a great sense of identity and self-worth. I don't have to endlessly try and go out and fill the void in my life with things that will only leave me empty. I don't have to wonder, did God make a mistake when He made me a man or, or a woman? I don't have to change my gender. I don't have to do anything to earn His love. I don't have to do anything to deserve His grace. He already gave it to me. And that ought to give praise today when you know that God is your source. That you're more than just a cosmic accident. But then number two, I want you to see, we give thanks because God is our shepherd. He's our source and then He's our shepherd. Look what verse 3 says very quickly. And we are His people and the sheep, what church? Of His pasture. That second attribute of God that the psalmist focuses on is his guiding and his guarding that he gives us as the good shepherd makes us think of the most famous psalm of all psalm 23 david riding there on the hillside of bethlehem watching after his father's sheep he put this to paper the lord is my shepherd and i shall not want jesus followed up with one of his seven i am statements in john 10 and verse 11 i am the good shepherd that David wrote about a thousand years beforehand. In every way that an ancient shepherd would lead and feed his flock, that's what the Lord does for you and me. Amen? Now to be called a sheep, friend, isn't exactly a compliment. And yet the Bible says that's what we are in our deepest nature. Sheep are stubborn. Now, wives, don't elbow your husband right now. I'm preaching to you too. Sheep are stubborn. They're clueless. They're not very smart. They have no sense of direction. They can end up in a briar patch or trapped by a predator or worst of all, going off the edge of a cliff. That's your heart. That's my heart without the guidance of a shepherd. In fact, I'd probably wager to you that most of the trouble that you get into is self-inflicted because you get away from the shepherd. You go off and do your own thing. Now what Isaiah 53 says, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. That's me and that's you. I told you earlier on this year in a message about Shrek, the sheep. In 2004, this sheep gained worldwide fame. There's a picture of him. Here's the story. According to this New Zealand owner, John Perriam, Shrek escaped his enclosure and evaded the shepherd for six years by hiding in caves. Merino sheep, the kind that Shrek was, are usually shorn annually, so when Shrek was caught, the sheep was unrecognizable due to the massive coat of wool. Shrek, listen, had to be carried down the mountain because his fleece was so heavy that he couldn't walk on his own. To relieve Shrek of the weight of his waywardness, he was turned upside down so he would remain still. 
And the shear begins shaving his belly and then up to his neck and the rest of his body. When he was fully shaved, Shrek's fleece weighed an amazing 60 pounds, enough wool to make suits for 20 men. Wow. And as I read the scripture and as I read that story, I think about my life and there was a time when I was Shrek. There was a time when I was hiding from God. There was a time when I didn't want to be found. There was a time in the pridefulness of my heart when I said, God, I don't need you. I think I've got this figured out on my own. Some of you are like that too. That's your testimony. You're far from God. You've walked away from church or you walked away from Christ and you're into the temptations of the world, but really and truly, when you lay your head down at night, you're empty and you're bleeding. You're crying out for meaning and purpose and love and peace in your life. I'm here today to tell you, some of you are hiding in sin. You're hiding in caves just like old Shrek was because you don't want to be found. But I'm telling you today that there's a Jesus. And even when you can't get down the mountain, even when you can't get to God, there was a seeking shepherd. The Bible says in Luke in chapter 15 that he'll leave the 99 to go after the one. Oh, friend, I'm thankful that there was a shepherd who came and reached way down and found me in my despair, found me in my pit, found me in my sin, and brushed me up and cleaned me off and set my feet upon a solid rock. Somebody help me preach this today. In the house of God, I've got a shepherd. And when he heard me crying, he came to my need. He came to my side. Oh, friend, let me ask you today. Where were you when the shepherd found you? How dark was your pit? How deep was your sin? Oh, friend, there's no darkness so black that his eye cannot pierce through and see you where you are. There's no cry so faint that his ear is deaf and he cannot hear. Oh, there's no pit so deep that his arm is too short to where he can't reach way down and pull you up out of the mess that you're in. He never stopped loving you. He never stopped seeking after you. He's been searching. He's been calling. He's been reaching out. You want to be found today? Oh, there's a shepherd. He's calling I want you to see, number one, the reason why I give thanks today is because God is my source. Number two, because God is my shepherd. How am I doing, church? Number three, I want to talk to you. I give thanks because God is our sustainer. Our sustainer. Notice what verse 5 says right there. For the Lord is, what church? Good. You try and say that with a frown on your face. Oh, the Lord is good. The psalmist turns our attention to the next reason for thanksgiving. God's goodness as a sustainer and a provider. What did the psalmist say in chapter 34 and verse 8? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Like a big spoonful of mom's gravy right out of the pot before you put it on mashed taters. Oh, taste and see. Bet you can't eat just one, Brother Stacy. You get a taste of God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy. Oh, you want to keep coming back. Coming back to His Word. Coming back to hear the preacher. Coming back to hear the song. Because He's a good God. Five times in Psalm 107 it says this refrain. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Do you believe that, young people? 
Some of you young people ain't lived long enough and ain't been through enough trials and hard times to know the goodness of God. I'm telling you, young person, you hang on to Him. He'll never disappoint you. He'll never lead you astray. He'll never take you into a broken relationship. He'll never lead you to drugs and alcohol. He'll never lead you into depression, young people. Get a hold of the goodness of God. Fill your heart with His Word, with His Spirit, and you'll find, oh, He's a good God. David Jeremiah gave this insight when he defined God's goodness. Listen to what he said. He said, quote, God's goodness conveys His infinite and lavish generosity toward us. It is His nature to bring blessing and joy and contentment to all His creatures, even as fallible human beings. Most people feel a sense of satisfaction when we are able to do something for somebody else. What's the source of that impulse? He said it comes from being made in God's image. Who knows how to give a good and perfect gift as a father? Think of the greatest pleasure you've ever felt in doing something for someone else when they couldn't repay you and multiply that by billions. That is the heart of our Father in heaven who delights to freely give us all things. Yes, even to dote on us with His abundant, extravagant grace. Amen. You say, well, preacher, I'm having a hard time being thankful today. (laughs) Open your eyes, friend. Don't count sheep, count your blessings. Think about what God has done over the long haul of your life. How many times did God touch your sick body and heal you out of that bed? How many times has God come through and answered a prayer at your darkest hour at the bedside when nobody else was there, God was there? How many times did the goodness and the peace of God wrap Himself around you when you were broken and lost? How many many bills has God paid for you? How many times has He met your need, child of God? How many times when you said, Lord, I don't know how we're going to make it out of this one. And God said, you just hold on, child. I'm going to show you something that's going to blow your hair back. Hey, that's my God. My God never gets painted into a corner. My God never wipes anxious sweat from His brow and said, I don't know how I'm going to get a lease out of this problem. Why? Because He's a good God. He's an on-time God. He's a merciful God and a powerful God. Oh, friend, think of it. The answered prayers, the miracles of healings and salvations, the forgiveness and the fresh tears cried at an altar. That's the goodness of God. Think about the deep, settled peace that you have when you enter into a storm, a peace that passes all understanding that only a child of God knows that you can't explain to a lost person. That's the goodness of God in your life. Think about when you sit out on your porch and you see a beautiful sunset or you go hiking up in the mountains and your jaw drops when you see a waterfall. That's the goodness of God. He said, I made that just for you so you could know who I am. Oh, think about going into Caitlin's kitchen on a Saturday morning with biscuits coming out the oven, hot biscuits put on a slab of butter, Brother Clifford. Give me that honey jar. Oh, friend, that's the goodness of God. God didn't have to make food taste good, but He's a good God, and He gives all things freely. Why, even an unbeliever, even an atheist can appreciate that. Amen? Think about the hold in the hand of your spouse. 
the love, the intimacy that God created that one person for you to share life with. That's the goodness of God. Think about the laughter of children. It's music to my ears. We open a gym on Wednesday night and we walk in and there's kids wall to wall just running around, bouncing balls and laughing and falling down. It's the goodness of God. Hey, I'd rather have dirty walls and messes to clean up than a field full of cotton where the church is dying and there's no, no desire to reach the community, no love for the young people. Think about the goodness of God when you take that first sip of coffee in the morning. Oh. Hey, what have I told you before? Caffeine plus the Holy Spirit, that's a combination right there. God's helping me today. The evidence of God's goodness is scattered all throughout our lives. It's like man in the wilderness. All you got to do is reach down and pick up a blessing. It's there. A few years ago, I read an article in the USA Today about a man named Mr. Ota Anders. Look at this, brother. He's from Ralston, Louisiana. He spent 45 years reaching down and collecting something that most of us wouldn't take time for. Pennies. Listen to what happened. In October of 2015, the 73-year-old Anders, who was a school janitor, took all the pennies that he collected, he took them to his local bank. He was going to donate them to a charity. He five jugs, and when they tallied up the total, $5,136.14. That's a lot of pennies. In fact, the bank's coins machine took five hours to count all the pennies, according to the article. But what's truly interesting about the story isn't this man's thriftiness. It's his thankfulness. Listen to what, was, what he said. I can't believe USA Today published this, but they did. He said, Every penny that I picked up, I became convinced that it was an additional God-given incentive reminding me to be thankful. He said, every time I picked up a penny, I thank God for the blessing in my life. Gratitude is the attitude which sets the altitude of living. Imagine how different our outlook would be if we strolled through life looking for pennies. Looking for the blessings of God laying all around us. And if you had that perspective, oh, another bill paid. Oh, another one saved. Oh, preacher, preach a good sermon today. Pick that one up. Oh, Lord, I needed that verse. It was timely. Oh, God, thank you that sister so-and-so is praying for me. And you can spend your day just walking around picking up pennies, picking up the blessings of God all around you. Somebody say amen. I was getting worried. Can I keep going? Number four, we give thanks because God is our Savior. He's our sustainer. He's our source. He's our Savior. Notice what verse 5 says. For the Lord is good. And watch this. The New King James says, His mercy is everlasting. I like that. The psalmist found reason to praise when he reflected on the salvation that God offered. The Hebrew word used in the text for mercy also translated steadfast love in your ESV. It's an interesting word. It's the word hesed. Not he said, she said, but hesed. It's interesting. I studied this word. 
You know what it's closely related to in the Hebrew language? The word for stork. It's the same word, literally. How is that? Well, the Hebrews noticed how storks had an uncommon love and protection for their young. Storks, listen to this, are migratory birds, and once they build a nest high in the trees, they will always return to the same roost to raise their young. Once a mother stork lays her eggs, she never leaves them. And during migration, the younger storks are often carried on the backs of the older ones. The Hebrews saw the loyal and unfailing love of the stork as a picture in creation of the Hesed love and mercy of God. Think about all the ways that God is faithful. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's always watching over us. And His mercy and grace will take us to the very heights of heaven one day. And most importantly, when we fall into sin, when we fall into waywardness, He doesn't throw us away and get rid of us. He's a second chance God. He's a God who we can say, His mercy, what is it church? Is temporary. Last only if you're good uh, is, is determined by how much Bible you read or how much church you attend or whether you wake up on the wrong side or the right side of the bed. No! His mercy is everlasting. You know what mercy is, don't you? That's the opposite of justice. You see, justice is when you get what you deserve. Like when Daddy took me outside and whipped me with the belt. I deserved it. I was being a smart aleck. I was being disobedient. That's justice when you get what's coming to you. But mercy, that's when you don't get what you deserve. And grace, that's when you get what you can't earn and don't deserve. Now there's no clear picture of how all these attributes intersect than the cross of Christ. Calvary is the hesed of God in full display, in high definition. Think about it. Christ received the Father's judgment and wrath for our sins. He got the punishment that we deserve. And at the same time, Christ hanging there between heaven and earth is our willing substitute. He's the means by which God can offer out His abundant mercy. Uh, not what we deserve, but what we can't earn and don't deserve. And it's open to all those who repent and believe. That's where it all comes together at the cross. That's what Paul thought about when he broke out in thanksgiving praise in Colossians 1 verses 12 and 14 listen to what he said giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin I said God took you out of darkness and brought you into light I said God paid the debt that you owed because he owed a debt that he did not uh, deserve, but he paid it in your place. He's signed you up for an inheritance in heaven that can't be taken away, can't be lost. The world didn't give it and the world can't take it. It's an inheritance that, out, that is out of this world. That's why I say Thanksgiving is 365 for this old boy because I know what I've been saved from and I know what I've been reserved for in eternity. 
Uh, you don't have to convince me to be thankful. You don't even have to get to cook a turkey to get me to be thankful. I know what my Savior did for me. And every day that I've got strength, Brother Clifford, I'm going to put these big size 13s on the ground and I'm going to say, God, you've been more than good to me. God, you don't have to bless me today. God, if you give me one more blessing, my cup's running over. I don't even think I'll be able to stand myself. Lord, you saved me and that's enough. What do you want me to do today for you, Lord? I'm reporting for duty. In 1742, John Wesley was on a whirlwind preaching tour. He went through some of his stomping grounds. He visited his hometown of Epworth, England, where he faithfully pastored for many years. But as Wesley found when he got there, the pastors barred him from preaching in their churches. They didn't like the kind of rabble and refuse of the world that he attracted. So Wesley packed up and he went north to another town named Newcastle. As he stepped in the streets of Newcastle, England, he was appalled at the squalor and the sin that he saw all around him. All he saw around him was drunkenness and debauchery and poverty and prostitution. In his own diary, Wesley said that he deliberately found, quote, the poorest and most contemptible part of town. In other words, take me to the seediest, darkest, dirtiest, most rotten red light district you got in this city. And he went there. He stood outside the city tavern. And he began preaching. And you know what he preached from? Psalm 100. It was as if Newcastle was a test case. If the gospel could penetrate the hardened hearts of the people there, oh, it could work anywhere. And before long, a crowd began to gather outside on the street where John Wesley was preaching. And soon they say more than a thousand people were there to listen to him. And he waxed eloquently on into the evening. And then you know what happened? The Spirit of God fell in that little town. And God rocked that place. And people were buckling on their knees in conviction. And sinners were getting down in the ditches and in the streets and in the corners and wherever they could find to repent and give their life to a great and glorious Savior. And I'm telling you today, He's still that kind of God. He's still got abundant mercy and grace in the bank of heaven. Oh, and friend, if you need it today, all you got to do is call upon His name. What was it that broke down the hard hearts of the people of Newcastle? It was the gospel of God's has said that His mercy endures. Patient love and mercy. Thank God today that when justice called for this old boy, mercy answered. And let me just go on record. Let me give God just a little bit of praise today. I, I'm about to jump out through the roof, Brother Clifford, because I just got to baptize number 23 in the year of 2022. I just want to brag on God a little bit. How many preachers in the land get to baptize 23 people in one calendar year? And it ain't because of me. It's because of Him. He's a saving God. He's still the God of Psalm 100. And I think He might want to save somebody today who's nearest the fires of hell. He's still on the throne. His Word's still pure. His Spirit still strives. There's still mercy and grace today. Oh, friend. I just want to brag on God a little bit. 
Because when you baptize 23 people in one year, you say, God has done more than I could think or imagine. God did it. God did it. Not me. Not the deacon board. Not the people of the church. God did it. And friend, if you only knew how much that blessed the heart of a preacher. When you look at the miracles that God has done in your midst. And you say, God, how can you? How? And then he says, I'm not done yet. Just keep preaching. Just keep sharing. Just keep praising. Because I'm not done yet. God's not dead and God's not done. Amen. Lastly, and I'm done. We give thanks because God is our Savior. God is our sustainer. He's our source. Then lastly, we give thanks because God is our strength. Notice verse 5 and I'm done. And His truth endures to all generations. The last quality that the psalmist pointed out is the way that God's Word will eternally be fresh, be relevant, and be restoring to the human soul for ages hence. Notice how this psalm, friend, encompasses all modes of time. Notice this. This is so beautiful. God's mercy takes care of our past. I don't care what you did or how many times you did it or how dark or or how bad it was. God's mercy takes care of that. And then God's goodness takes care of our present need. What do you have today? A bill. A sickness. A prodigal son or daughter. A broken marriage. An empty life. Oh, He's got enough goodness to meet that need. He takes care of our past and our present. But then notice this. God's truth takes care of our future. Because it says that His truth endures to all generations. That means long after you've breathed your last and your body's been put in the ground and turned to dust, God's Word will still be true. God's Word will still be going forth. God's Word will still be impacting hearts and saving lost folks. You say, preacher, why is it you get it so excited when you get up on Sunday morning? Because I know I've got dynamite in a book. All I have to do is open it and proclaim it and preach it like I believe it. And God said, my word will go forth and it won't return void. You have confidence when you know that the thing that you're standing on is inerrant, inspired, infallible, and been proven over the ages to change hearts and lives. That's why I get excited about preaching the Word of God. Because I wake up on Sunday morning and I'm headed out with joy and good, good thanksgiving in my heart because I'm thinking, God, what are you going to do today? God, who are you going to save today? God, who's going to be sprawled out at the altar finding mercy and grace? God, whose marriage are you going to put back together today? Lord, what saint is ready to give up that you're going to encourage them today from your Word? Oh, and I get excited about preaching God's Word. That's enough right there to make a Methodist shout. No offense to our Methodists. Isaiah 40 verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God shall what? Stand forever. How many times have you thought about giving up? Nobody came to my class. Nobody was blessed by my song. Nobody came to pray. 
You were discouraged. You were down. You wanted to give up. Holy Spirit said, come here. And you opened this Word of God. And you found a truth you could hang your life on. And you say, Lord, I was so close to giving up. But God, you spoke to me from your Word. And now I can go on one more day, Lord. How many times has God's Word come to you in a broken situation? Oh, and it was like a word fitly spoken. It was worth more than gold. And it just burst into your soul and changed your life. That's the truth of God that endures to all generations. How many times beside a bed or in a graveside or in a trial of adversity. Oh, it wasn't uh, the Asheville... uh, Citizen Times, it wasn't Newsweek magazine, it wasn't the disquisitions of philosophers. Somebody said, open up the Word of God and give me something I can live my life on. And the Word of God was there. For 17 years, Mark and Gracia Burnham served as missionaries in the Philippines. But in 2001, they were kidnapped. They were kidnapped by Muslim terrorists and then held for ransom. For more than a year, they were under total control of their captors. They were constantly moved. They were beaten. They were put in prison. They were deprived of food. It was the Abu Sayyaf Muslim group that had them in their clutches. Toward the end of their ordeal, this lady, Gracia Burnham, hit a breaking point. She doubted God's love and God's control, and anybody can understand that. God, do you really love me? Or did I miss something? Why do I belong to terrorists? Gracia almost gave up her faith. But there was one Bible verse that shot straight into her heart Psalm 100. It was Psalm 100 Serve the Lord with gladness. And come before his presence with singing. One night her husband Martin who was captured with her said this. Gracia, I don't know why God has allowed this to happen to us. But I've been thinking about Psalm 100. How can we serve God with gladness in this situation? He said just because we're here doesn't mean we can't praise him in chains. Like Paul and Silas did in the jail. Shortly after that, on the afternoon of June 7, 2002, over a year after their abduction, the Philippines military attempted to rescue this couple. Tragically, Martin was shot and killed in the gunfire, but Gracia survived. She was rescued, but now she had to face the challenge of raising her kids as a widow. She once again, when she got back to the States, opened the Word of God and went to Psalm 100. And she remembered reading these verses. And here's what she said in her memoir. She said, God spoke to her saying, I have not changed. I brought you through everything and I'm not leaving you now. I will provide for you and protect you. And then he said to her, I will be to you as your husband. He's our source. He's our strength. He's our savior. He's our sustainer. Do you know the God that I'm preaching about today? 
If you don't, you can meet Him. Our musicians are coming. Our altar is open, I think, in a crowd of this size that God may have spoke to at least one heart today. Hey, if you need forgiveness, if you need a second chance, if you need prayer, our altar is open for any reason. For anybody who needs to find that God is a God of grace and a very present help in a time of need. Will you stand with me as Preston leads us today? Our altar is open. I'd love to meet with you. Love to pray with you. Lead you to the Lord.